0: Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A cliché is defined as a phrase or opinion that is overused and betrays a lack of original thought. It's often cliché to begin a sermon with a dictionary definition, too. I just thought of that right now. But it's the case with a lot of things in our world. A lot of things become cliché. And the things pertaining to God are no exception. We have a lot of examples that we hear around us in pop Christianity. And one of these, it's often a cliche when people say, well, God is in control. And like anything that's said, we have to always ask the question, what does this mean? What do you mean by that? Because more often than not, sadly, this phrase is misused. And while it may be true, we need to know even though well-meaning people may say it, God is in control. It can get turned in our hearing or a way to ignore what God's word says, to simply just throw up our hands. It can become void of anything pertaining to Christ and just become some generic saying about God in a higher power sort of way. But when we look at the scriptures and when we see rightly, however, that God is in control... That is to understand it in terms of both law and gospel, and understand it in terms of Christ. It's to drive us back to His Word, not just throwing up our hands in little faith, but clinging to His Word and in faith trusting what He says. God is in control. And we see this in all three of the readings today. And He's in control to bring us to repentance. And to bring us to faith in Christ. Now think about a minute for that first reading. It's the whole first chapter of Jonah. God was in control. And that's what Jonah didn't like. In the opening verses of the book of Jonah, we hear this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Here God had called Jonah to be a prophet to the people of Nineveh, but he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't want to go where God would have him go. He wanted to define things on his terms. But being a prophet doesn't work that way and the reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh is a surprising one and kind of worth noting at the beginning of chapter four after the people of Nineveh repented and God didn't send disaster upon him Jonah reveals and he says why he was trying to flee to Tarshish it says but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry that is he was upset that the people repented and he prayed to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, is it not that what I had said when I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a generous God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster?" He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God and his mercy would save the people. He didn't want the people to repent. He didn't want God to accomplish through the preaching of his word their repentance and faith. So here then, at the be- at, on this boat at the beginning of the reading, we see God in control. And notice, who sent this storm upon the men in the boat? It doesn't say, and it happened by chance, no. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God's wrath was against Jonah. But it wasn't some Charlie Brown thing where there's just a rain cloud following down over him all experienced this all in the the men in the boat suffered too and so they were suffering they were thinking they were going to die they thought their boat was going to break up and it was because of Jonah because of his refusal to obey the word of God so they start praying in vain to their false gods as they as Jonah was asleep sleeping as Luther calls it a sleep of death So as he's in the bowels of the boat, he's snoring and rusting his head, in open defiance to God. But the Lord wouldn't let him rest. Sacrifice needed to be made, and finally Jonah awoke, and he spoke the truth to his shipmates, confessing rightly who was to blame and who the true Lord, who the true God is. And then we're told they worshipped God, which is the same word for fear. The word for fear and the word for worship in Hebrew are the same. And we were told what happened next. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So in all of this, God was in control. So in that account of Jonah, it teaches us a number of things, but in this reading, we primarily see the Lord's anger is against those who do not obey his word. The Lord was in control in this situation because he knew what must happen. Nineveh must repent, and they needed a preacher to preach this to them. And God used this storm that he hurled upon them as a means to show his anger, as a means to arouse Jonah to action, to open... His word and confess his him to the men. So, in what, what appeared to be a time of death, there was new life for these mariners as they saw the futility of their false gods and finally worshipped the true God after Jonah revealed him to them. And so, God was using Jonah even at this point to preach and do the work of a prophet. And the gospel reading shows us another example of the Lord's control. We hear Matthew record for us, he said, And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So, here then we have another boat and another storm. This time Jesus is in the boat, the disciples are with him, and we're told a storm comes upon them. God doesn't tell us this time that it's explained as God's anger toward them that this storm comes upon them, but rather we see instead their little faith in the matter. So, even though the Lord is sleeping, though, he's still with them. He's not off on the distance, he's right in their midst. He's not far from them in their trouble, he's very near but the disciples instead are acting cowardly. That's the Greek word used here when Jesus rebukes them instead of fear or being afraid. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why are you afraid? He says, you cowards, you cowards. Why are you of little faith? They're being cowards when it comes to this situation. And so that he rebukes them, that they would see who it is in their midst, that they would trust his care, that they would cling to his word. And then in that epistle reading, we also see something in terms of suffering. We see that all of creation is under the curse of sin. We stand in this judgment, and so does all of creation. And so an interesting thing when you look at Romans chapter 8 and you see the all-encompassing nature of sin, it tells us something that we should be surprised that we have anything good from the world around us. Because put yourself in this position. How would you like it if someone cursed your whole life, leading to your ultimate destruction? Would you give that person anything good? So when we see creation is corrupted because of the fall of Adam into sin, why should we expect cows to give us milk instead of poison? Why should we expect the crops that we put into the ground to even grow and not simply yield nothing but thorns and thistles? Well, the reason why is what we hear in our reading today from Romans. St. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futil- futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So even in creation, even in these things around us, we see God is in control and he shows his mercy on account of Christ. So seeing all of these then in Jonah and the words of St. Paul and the gospel reading with the disciples on the boat with Jesus, it causes us to pause To look at these and to ask ourselves a question, okay then, well, if God is in control, what does that say about me? Well, it reveals something about yourself. It reveals to you that you should fear God. You should fear God who caused a storm to come upon disobedient Jonah. You should fear the Lord who has authority and power to rebuke the wind and the wave just by Mary speaking it. You should fear God, who has justly judged all of creation because of the fall into sin. And you should fear God, who alone can send you to hell forever. God is in control. And you know what? You're his creation. That means you must answer to him. And as much as you try to wiggle around it, you can't say anything or do anything otherwise. We hear in Scripture, for the Lord, the Most High is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So God is in control. Repent of your sin. Hear God's word. follow His commandments. Seek not your own own understanding. And so with all of this, we see that God is in control, has a reason and a purpose. And it's in all of these readings and in our life we see that it's for your benefit. And it's seen and understood rightly, properly in the person and work of Jesus. God is in control because that is who as the creator of all things and his purpose and proper work is to save you in Christ. That's the proper work of God. And that's the great comfort of this day as God presents this before you. This last Sunday of the epiphany before transfiguration, this is made known, this is revealed, this is an epiphany for you. The Lord's desire, the Lord's work, It's your salvation. And he's done it. He's done this for you in Christ. He's accomplished this for you as he has promised and freely gives it to you. Even creation around you testifies this as it gives you its fruit. The very fact that you have produce from the ground shows that God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself. We understand it in that way. It doesn't necessarily in that general way, but we understand that. The Lord's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus because he is that perfect sacrifice who was crucified, whose body was placed into the belly of the earth, who was spit out on the third day in resurrection glory, as Jesus said he would do, which is the sign of Jonah for the people. Jonah is a type of Christ in that way. Here's one who's thrown, sacrificed to appease God's wrath, and then rises on the third day. So sin, death, and the devil, those terrible storms, they've been rebuked by the blood shed for you. Now there is a word of calming calming peace, and it's not, it's going to be okay or calm down. No, it's your sin is forgiven. And so in Christ, in his forgiveness, you have hope of the future glory to come which St. Paul refers to in the epistle when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Martin Luther commenting on this text, when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and wonder why we did not suffer more in our lives, even as bad as we might suffer, because the glory that God has won for us in Christ is that great. The glory to come is nothing in comparison to this world. We can't compare it. Everything now that we see around us is tainted by sin and compels into comparison to what it was before the fall into sin. Luther talks about in his commentary on this text that even the sun does not shine as brightly as it did before the fall. We have no idea the true glory of God and what awaits us. We only know things that are paled in comparison under the wages of sin. Our crops are not nearly as good as they could have been, as much as we might try to do with them or by certain types of special seed. It could have been better. God, though, did not let our sin keep us from living with him forever in glory beyond compare. In his mercy, he sent Christ to redeem us. So walking then through this life as Christians, we have this salvation through faith in Christ worked by the Holy Spirit. So going through all of these things then, we look around us, we see our whole lives with the eyes of faith and gives new meaning to everything. So, no matter what we face in this life, no matter if our sin should plague us and the devil try to rub it before our eyes, even if we stare our own death in the face, we have Christ. Christ who has conquered all of these things for us. Christ who gives us the victory. And in him, St. Paul says, we are more than conquerors. Because baptized in Christ, we know that God is in control, and not in some trite, abstract, generic, sentimental, hallmark card kind of way but he's really in control because of christ so repenting of our sin and clinging to him through receiving his word and sacraments we confess this we believe it we don't just throw up our hands and let go and let god but we walk by faith informed by the word yeah we let go of something we let go of our sin we throw out our hands as beggars to receive from the gracious hand of god We cry out in that great prayer of faith, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We don't downplay the fallenness of this world. We don't try to excuse our sin away. We don't try to excuse suffering away, but we realize what it is and we know that it's, it's in fact, suffering and the wages of sin. And we confess it. We hear the word of forgiveness spoken by the gospel. In the midst of all of this, then, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We fix our eyes on what is to come and know what our future glory is and it's beyond compare something we can't even begin to imagine and so the lord is in control because he is the true god who puts to shame all false gods the god who humbles us he alone is the almighty god who came down from heaven to save his people whom he has created to save you his dear creation that you may be his own He's done it as he is in control for your sake and is in control in in calling you to faith and bringing you into eternal glory. And so he doesn't leave you open-ended. He doesn't leave you in the dark about how he works. Let it never be said of us that we don't know what God is up to in our lives or how God is working. Because in the grand scheme of things, while there may be things we don't understand on this side of the grave, we always know that God is in control and how he is doing this through his word through his sacraments. Look to Christ crucified. Look to Christ risen, and you have the answer, just as you have salvation in him. So, thanks be to God for all of this as we hear this this day. Thanks be to God who has done wondrous things, that even the wind and the sea obey him. And though our faith may be little at times, and we may be cowards like the disciples, he is the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And because of that, we have everything. We even have everlasting life. Glory beyond compare. And so God is in control. Thanks be to God. And you know this, you have this confidence as you look to Christ crucified and risen for you. Amen.